You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Why would anyone talk about David Fincher serial killer movies for 90 minutes unless the act itself had meaning? Welcome to Be Real, a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And I pretty much already said what we're going to talk about today. Uh, a lot of Fincher, Noah Ballard. And uh, you excited for this? Um, in some ways. You know, some of these movies offer pretty concrete closure, while others feel like they end on more of an ellipsis. So, that's right, and that's much how like we judge, life itself. That's how we judge a movie. <laughs> Did it, it end? Did it end? Did it end satisfyingly? Was the ending well made, along with the rest of it? But I feel like you and I, and we should say it's David Fincher's sixtieth uh, birthday coming up at the end of the month doesn't seem like a huge birthday guy fincher would you agree he's probably not that (laughs) that that tracks what do you think he's doing for his 60th if you had to guess based on his oeuvre sitting in a very expensive but very dimly lit bar sipping whiskey alone very very slowly yeah moving moving the glass so it's completely symmetrical with the doing some of the tricks that robert downey jr was doing at the bar in uh, no, Zodiac. that's way too convivial. I, I know. I, I I went too far. We're going to talk specifically about his serial killer films today. Uh, Seven, Zodiac, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. We might even sprinkle in a little Mindhunter, which is a favorite show of Noah's and mine. Oh, I go nuts for Mindhunter. Yeah, I Thank you for already cracking up, open that cold one. <laughs> that's, that's why I said it, baby. Um, I think in general... Well, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Fincher is a, a favorite of mine. He's made a, a couple of my favorite movies and uh, many others that I like. I even had a soft spot for old Benny Button when I was a teenager. Haven't watched it in many years, mostly because it seems flagrantly uncool, but I need to get over myself and maybe check back in with it. it Benjamin Button has a certain sentimentality to it. That, a certain like, sentimentality. That's the whole thing. Yeah, but I'm just agreeing with what you're saying, that it's such a weird departure for... It's like when Ridley Scott does like a good year. It's like right. you can keep that to yourself. <laughs> this this one-day good mood you had didn't have to be a whole movie. Yeah, you had to really dedicate three years of your life to producing this? Come on. What? Go, hashtag goes on vacation one time yeah um, yeah you go to italy one time and suddenly you're making a good year let me dive right in then because i think you hit it one of the strange things about uh benjamin button and it's kind of you know fairly pure earnestness i would say is that like my broader theory of Fincher is that he's a filmmaker who thrives on conflict like all of these movies are kind of like chess matches with themselves in the sense that he wants to do something like very intelligent and very clinical, but also at times like very trashy and very salacious. Um, And like, you can break it down. Like I think all of these movies are kind of based on conflict. My theory of seven is that it's like a cop procedural that clearly finds all of its like tones and inspirations from the killer. And Zodiac is this movie about the absolute fucking futility of investigation. That's 
really compulsively rewatchable because of the investigation. And Dragon Tattoo, he's trying to like sharpen and expand this very pulpy novel into kind of a bifurcated meditation on loneliness. We can talk about whether that works or not. But like these are movies that are all kind of fighting with each other. And similarly, I think if you asked Fincher, like, hey, man, what do you like about serial killers? He's going to tell you, go fuck yourself. He's like, nah, none of it's about serial killers. It's actually about voyeurism or the way that repulsion and attraction like work with each other. Um, he would never answer that question. To your point, these are all crime genre movies. And he is, at his core, like a crime genre director like even social network i would argue is like a you know goodfellas level rise and fall of a criminal organization movie yeah no you're so right and he does them in such an artful literary way that's he i mean it's it's almost as if he knew our rating system existed before he started making films yeah it only took us a few minutes to kind of paint ourselves as the inspiration for David Fincher's filmography. Excellent. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts? Like, what does he mean to you? Well, I kind of came into, this is to deal with seven. So maybe it's a good anecdote to open with, but Let's I came it. to Fincher, I guess like a little bit later. I wasn't someone for whom like they saw seven early on and then like, was like, Oh, seven off oh, fight club. <laughs> and then spent I, the rest of your life in an institution. Because you saw seven. Nah, there's age like a nine. there's a demographic of like, you know, the young men who are currently being threatened by all like the Holden Caulfield online discourse, uh, mm. mm-hmm. who really I think like Seven and Fight Club for its pseudo countercultural appeal. Uh, but I remember my parents had gone on a double date with their family friends, and my uncle Roy had recommended so like urgently and impassionedly seeing seven because it was like incredible and he loved it. And my parents are like pretty, my mother like doesn't like gore. She doesn't even like gratuitous nudity. Uh, and they went on this double date and my, they were like horrified by it. And I think like it, it caused like a rift, uh, between between my my uncle and my dad for a short and they they talk about it to this day it's incredible uncle roy was like you didn't even like the part at wild bill's leather and so i like thought this movie was so grotesque or something as to be unwatchable or something uh and so like really had like a high barrier to finally watch it and when i did watch it it was like oh i mean it's still like a mainstream motion picture It's very disturbing, but it also, of course, censors itself at very key moments. Right. It's still like a movie made with special effects and, you know, and it's, yeah, it's like a You don't see what's in the box. You never see what's in the box. No. So anyway, but yeah, I feel like I, but but for that, I prejudge David Fincher just because of my, my parents' influences. Him is like in the category of like a cannibal holocaust or something. (laughs) Yeah, but this side of Mank, surely you understand more about his intentions. And that he can be quite boring if he wants. He can definitely be the kind of filmmaker my parents want him to be if if, if given the right creative whatever. That's so funny. Yeah, he makes some more movies about authorship for Noah's parents. Please. Um. They don't leave the house. They are desperate for content. 
You like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I will come inside five years. Not here. Now, is he we have ourselves a homicide? They're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Seven. 1995, two hours and seven minutes. Two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. There you go. Fincher's second film after Alien 3, which is, you know, a classic. (laughs) Which is a a (laughs) classic to some, and he regards as like the worst experience of his entire life. It's um, a little bulbous at most. Right. I mean, one could argue Alien 3 is a movie about a serial killer of a kind. Um, oh. My God. It certainly has Holt McElhaney in it. Uh, it sure does. I okay. love that they continue to collaborate. Me too. This is on Netflix too, just FYI. There you go. Uh, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote the script, uh, who is also writing the the forthcoming Fincher movie, The Killer, which I believe can I can I say what you said the other day is it's keeping you not I won't say giving you life that's too positive I think it was more like something too keeping me from the clutches of death. Yeah. <laughs> a movie about Michael Fassbender playing an assassin who's losing his mind. Fine. And Swinton's in it. Fine. Let's go. Let's is this going to be his Shutter Island? Fine. I'm open to it. Um. But seven, so it's Morgan Freeman and Brad Morgan. Pitt, young Brad Pitt. Very young. I heard Very the other charismatic. Day, I heard the other day Brad Pitt essentially gave Fincher like credit for like his career, basically, that he was kind of loping around in Hollywood playing pretty boy roles and like met Fincher and was like, oh, here's someone who gets me, um, which is an odd sentiment when you see the movie Seven. <laughs> it's like, this is what you saw in Brad is... A doomed man? Incredible, yeah. I would say, similarly, uh, I was moved by his performance in the recent Bullet Train. You are a big uh, Bullet Train supporter. I thought it was very fun. That's great. I still need to see it. Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt. He's, of course, the retiring detective. Brad Pitt just got transferred in. Is it ever clear why... Nope, he just, uh, I think, wanted an assignment in the big city. Looked at it as a kind of graduation, Mills did. And this is not a city in particular. It's sort of New York-ish. Yeah, it's like New York, it's like hell on earth, 70s New York with Seattle's rain, 
But if you drive out of town as they do at the end, it looks like the drive out of Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It has that LA where if you drive an hour in the wrong direction, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Really a composite of like the gloomiest, most desolate parts of American. And it's raining in every single fucking shot. Except, Except for the end. Except for the end. When, oh, the end. We got to talk about like the color palette at the end. Yeah. Darius Kanji, the DP, is like, all right, and now for jaundice. But it's not jaundice. It's like, it's like, ah, finally a day of sun. And it's like so unsettling because it is so bright. Mm-hmm. It's like when you come out of a movie theater, like during the day and it's like, oh, it's still day out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Freeman's the old cop. Hits the young cop, and uh, very quickly, they they their first assignment together turns out to be the 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 gluttony victim, a man who has been force fed so much pasta that he's chef boy are dead. Um, Isn't oh, Jesus Christ? What is that? Is that an original? Did you just come up with that on the I spot? I own it now. Yeah, chef boy are dead. Pre-plan Incredible. anything except. <laughs> My, There's I'm, definitely a full page on like a legal pad that says in 72 font, Chef, Chef Boyer Boy dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, as we look back on films that star problematic people, oh, of course. if they are playing villain roles, does that somehow make it a tiny bit more watchable? In the most like subjective viewer vacuum way possible. I mean... John Doe, what's really funny, I think, is uh, Somerset has this line where he's trying to talk Mills down a little bit, and he's like, you know, if John Doe turned out to be the devil himself, like, it wouldn't be satisfying. He's just a man. John Doe is about as close as you can get to playing the devil without having it be, like, you know, angel heart or devil's advocate. Like, he's, it's incredibly demonic, and I, I don't see any human nuance in the character whatsoever so the fact that he's played by kevin spacey i think works pretty fine (laughs) yeah i mean kevin spacey's got some pretty creepy range yeah i mean it shouldn't be like that perhaps surprising he was good at his job of acting well there's that but also that like this man could unlock a true monster within uh, for a number of roles yeah I think Usual Suspects also plays pretty totally. decent. Um, this is a very similar, I would say, role to at least the last, at least like the meticulousness of a verbal kint. Well, yeah, I mean, both are basically playing like an abstraction of evil in both of those movies. The Boogeyman, essentially. And just like that, he's canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Who I'd rather talk about performance-wise uh, that really kind of crept up on me this time was Morgan Freeman. Um, he's, he's great in this. I think he's someone who, especially as like his career wore on, and obviously he got this kind of later start into uh, Hollywood movies. Because this is like young Freeman, and he's still 80 years old. Yeah. But he's one of those people who is often like cast as like a signifier of like wisdom or kindness or, you know... Just like, you go ahead and play the Morgan Freeman role there, would you please? And he's like, sure, I'll do that 80 times. 
And but I, this was part of the defining, I think, of the, what the Morgan Freeman role could do. Like you could elevate what is seemingly a procedural kind of tropey, oh, guy in his last week of work thing. And really, yeah, transform it into something very wizened and very cynical. Totally. And I think there are like little moments in here that kind of betray like a, like a hardened internal state in Somerset. Like when he has, uh, he sits down at the diner with Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays Tracy Mills, wife. And they talk about, does she want to bring a baby into this, this horrible city, this horrible word world And Somerset talks about like how he was almost married once and essentially like pressured the woman into aborting the pregnancy just for, for similar reasons. And there's a way in which he says like, I wore her down which betrays a certain like not like a sweet regretfulness but like a hint of like this is not someone who you would want to have a marital argument with it's not someone you'd want to stay married to well he's not a terribly supportive partner no uh, even in the cop relationship he's very skeptical of both mills's intentions and his tactics uh i mean mills is a He's a loose cannon. I mean, there's this movie could so easily be like gory, lethal weapon. Sure. And th- there is something though between the chemistry of cynical, defeated, you know, remorseful old man, you know, with this just machismo, toxic masculinity guy who needs to prove he can make it in the uh, country bumpkin who thinks he can make it in the big city. Which, again, sounds so tropey and by the numbers, uh, but I don't know if it's in the script or in the performances or the execution of the, you know, the creative thing, but it's so much more than that. It's hard to put your finger on exactly like what the secret sauce is. I think it's more conflict, though, because I think the trope, more, more of that Fincherian character conflict, because the trope would be like if they were one or the other, but the fact that Somerset is both remorseful and the absolute cynic, and Mills is both the idealist and the loose cannon like those things are really bumping up against each other and i found myself wondering you know in this movie where it is essentially laid out for you like seven dominoes there's no time in the movie um save that one scene where they catch up to john doe's apartment where they're ahead of him at all they're just kind of following down the road and if you've seen the movie you know exactly where they're going but the there's something about i think unlike a, a lot of like noir pictures um these are characters that are do down the stretch kind of develop in a positive way in a way that you want to root for like somerset is more eventually more welcoming the hat and and mills is eventually he's like trying at least to intellectually engage with the job and the most happiness they show in the movie is when they're shaving their chest to put the wires on right before it all goes to shit like that's the highest point and so you can't help but be like Oh man, these guys were really trying before, you know, the universe like slammed the door on their fingers. Totally. Yeah. And it's funny because like the, I would say the bigger heartbreak of the movie and like, I guess we can get into spoilers here. This movie's from 95. What is Um, in the box? But I feel like the bigger heartbreak is of the movie is not what's in the box. It's almost seeing Somerset open up to somebody that he thinks he can mold in his image and then failing. Totally. Like someone he can like impart his hard earned wizened values system to, 
and seeing that person not accepted is like the more gut punch of this movie. If it's not too early to talk about just the way that the last scene where they drive John Doe out into the desert is shot and directed the, the way in which Fincher Fincher like shoots and then cuts um, John Doe in the back of the car, kind of telling them why he did it all. Cause the world is such a cesspool. Like Fincher visually creates distance between these two characters that you've wanted to see come together the whole time by shooting Spacey through the grate and then to pit. And then you see him through the rear view mirror in the grate being watched by Somerset. And he's literally showing you these men being driven apart because they just can't, they can't deal with this guy. And that's right. The, it's the well, loss. Yeah, he creates this great angle of, uh, John Doe speaking, Spacey speaking, and then it's the reaction from Brad Pitt who's facing backwards into the car. Yep. And then the only reaction shots, you're right, that you see from Morgan Freeman are him looking next to him where Brad Pitt is, but not being able to make eye contact with him because he's facing the backseat. Let me, let me ask you this. I, I feel like it's fair to... Can I, can I throw out a critique? Of the film 7? Of yeah, the film up? 7. What's up? What's up? Sometimes I feel like David Fincher goes for that little extra thing, you know, whether it's some of the gross detailing of um, the house from Fight Club or in this one. I just think that the apartment being so close to the elevated train track that it like shakes as though there's an earthquake every however minutes many minutes it's just kind of cheesy i <laughs> it takes I you, you out gonna... of kind of like the bleak realism of it that it's like come on we're in like a fairy tale now yeah i think more than anything i thought you were gonna make an argument that was icky or too dark or gratuitous like that part honestly that's one of the few parts where it's just like this is stupid a train would come by every seven minutes you would have moved out already like how does it how does it work? There's no way to avoid that. Like even as fast as your broker would get you in and out of that. A, I mean, yeah, I get what it's doing on the narrative level. It's like having this crutch of, or sort of this, this weakness, this Achilles heel of them being country bumpkins who are like lost in the big city. Right. And like being beautiful blonde people who haven't been beaten down by it. So like they have this mechanism internally that just like causes, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow at least to act insane and then like the implication that they're not sleeping either I get it like I get what it's doing but mm. the visual representation of it it's not I almost thought it'd be more powerful if it like was less noticeable sure because then it's just like an annoying thing like there's right. so many things in this world that are just like annoying like the rain isn't like people aren't drowning in puddles that are coming out of the road like it's just annoying that they're always getting their shoes wet there's so much noise. Every time Somerset's home, yes. you can hear everything in the adjoining apartments. Like, that's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the hell of more a more realistic, mediocre apartment is so much worse than this, like, almost like Tim Burton-esque kind of, you know, visual flourish. It's a little goofy. Um, all of these movies are also character actor paradises deep 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 benches and i'm curious if you have a favorite in seven you're just trying to get me to say john c mcginley i would love it if you said that but you can also say whatever you want 
Um, While you're looking, my favorite is uh, Reggie Cathy as the coroner. He's like one of like three doctors and coroners in the movies who's like, well, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And let me tell you why. (laughs) Yes. I do love that one doctor who's just like, well, he's in like the worst physical pain a person could be in. And probably has been for the better part of a year. So I'm going to go home. (laughs) Yeah. You shine a flashlight in his eyes. He died right now. (laughs) Uh, We got one look at Noah's bald head. He would just keel right over uh, uh, Richard Roundtree is pretty good. Yeah, I got the sense maybe in the, there was a version of the script that might have had a little, little more for Roundtree to do. It definitely feels like Roundtree was left on the cutting room floor, right? But he's good. Saying he's the DA, right? This will be the very definition of swift justice. And uh, of course, uh, Ar- Arlie Ermy as the as the police captain. Oh, sure. The guy from uh, Full Metal Jacket. Jacket. I bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose guy. Right, right. Um, Now will you talk about McGinley? Oh, that was so good when we were, I was watching it and you were texting me about the, oh Christ, somebody call someone. (laughs) That was great. Yeah. Yeah, McGinley's really good for that kind of like michael bay ian kind of guy on a walkie talkie just like good chatter yeah and him describing from like a couple thousand feet up like what's happening in the final scene of seven really adds to the final scene of seven (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean he's such a presence and then to just have him be like i don't know what's beyond frazzled and ruffled just like he himself so strapping so terrified somebody call somebody Somebody calls somebody. Well, he's like trying to game it out. Like as it goes, like, oh, he's running back towards him. Like, oh, there's a van pulling up. And then it's once, once he gets to a certain place, it's like, well, somebody calls somebody. You know what line actually sticks with me much more than what's in the box that I use in my life when I feel like the tables have turned or like I'm completely fucked in the situation is Morgan Freeman going, John Doe has the upper hand. Just- <laughs> Just be like, nah, this isn't going the way I thought it was going to go. Stay away. John Doe's got the upper hand. Oh, it's, that's a great line. Oh. And credit to Pitt, the moments, I, I won't say deciding, because that's not the right word, but where his, you know, some version of like an absolutely ripped open soul and ego are battling with each other, like in the seconds before he pulls the trigger, is just some incredible acting of like tears machismo tears machismo and woof yeah and it does feel like for a while of his reaction to it it is more like bruised ego mm-hmm. than it is genuine heartbreak and I, I i had i was thinking a lot about the um brad pitt gwyneth paltrow relationship too because like they're kind of hanging on to each other but they don't have that much connective tissue and it's obvious that Gwyneth Paltrow like reaches out to Morgan Freeman because of that lack of intimacy. And so I don't know. It's almost like Brad Pitt reveals himself to be in that moment more upset that he like lost the game that the two of them were playing. Like he had him act out the thing. It doesn't come from, I mean, yes, I think there's some heartbreak there for losing his high school sweetheart, but it doesn't seem like that's the priority of the pain. Yeah. He's at least toggling back and forth between two things 
Yeah. But every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, wait. I mean, I know he's going to, I know he's going to pull the trigger, but he always, there's always like one more thing where I'm like, wait, is he, oh, is he not going to? He just seems so broken. And then. And I really love how Fincher doesn't tee up that money shot. It really is a very simple, maybe it's slowed down a little bit, but it's Mm -hmm. just a pretty simple, like medium shot that's, you know, showing the beautiful background and it has all three of them in the frame. It's not any slow motion, low angle or anything that would be so much, I don't know, more celebratory of the gesture or something like it. Yeah. Revenge. You know, because that's not what it is. Should we tell people how we rate movies and then uh, rate seven? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. It's an easy good good for me. I've seen it many times. Um, I found new things to be impressed with this time in, in Freeman's performance. And, uh, you know, the... It, does, it, of course, does not shock the same way as the first couple times you saw it. But, I mean, Fincher has a real way, and this is an understatement, but a, a real way with, like, creepy rooms and the way that those rooms are lit, where, you know, they're wandering into the sloth apartment or the gluttony uh, garden-level home, and it's just like, please do not shine that flashlight anywhere else. Please just keep it... Put your hand over it, for God's sake. Um you know, I'm not saying anything people don't know, but a master of atmosphere. And uh, I think there's a, some actors in here who are doing a lot with humanity that is squelched, but it's humanity that makes it uh, reapproachable for me. So good, good. Totally agree. Uh, not for the faint of heart, especially if you haven't seen it before. But yeah, such a masterclass in like tone and pacing and the lighting too. Yeah, like there's no scene more terrifying than the one where Brad Pitt's um, flashlight starts to not work. Right. Because not only like it's a lifeline for him, like both in the aesthetics of the shot, but also like in his police duties. And that sort of leads him to, you know, a a combustible uh, climactic moment. So yeah, it's 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 really well done. It's dark as hell. It's oh pretty cynical and <laughs> you know, like most of Fincher's movies. Um but yeah, some really great charismatic performances in it as well. Um I have to agree with my uncle Roy on this one. That uh good good. That's awesome. Fun to see uh baby Fincher have to shoot on film too. Like there is a there is like a grit to the textures of this movie that he polishes out later totally he should bring it back 
He should. Even the fucking, just like how much work this opening title sequence does with the him putting the notebooks together. Mm-hmm. Like you really understand the killer in a way that I think a lot of say a movie like the girl with the dragon tattoo. It's like, Oh, this is just like a dark James Bond uh, opening title sequence and not doing the work of uh, like what it could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dear editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. Come up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Glenna said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, say, listen. Zodiac, 2007, rated R. Two hours and 37 minutes. Between 1968 and 1983, a San Francisco cartoonist becomes an amateur detective obsessed with tracking down the Zodiac Killer, an unidentifiable, an unidentified individual who terrorizes Northern California with a killing spree. It's obviously John Carroll Lynch. No. Come on. Is that really your reading on this movie? I have to say, after watching Zodiac, it's John Carroll Lynch. Arthur Lee Allen? Could be. All right. I'll wait for you it's to It's definitely back. him in the scene uh, with the when he picks up the, the woman with the baby in Modesto. It's at least his voice, yeah. It's at least his, but I think it's also his hulking, looming. But yeah, they clearly like have used a number of actors to kind of throw you off the scent but then it's of course the question of how many of these things in real life were actually the zodiac killer and how many did he just say he did right classic zodiac killer (laughs) you touched on something that i think i'll just kind of make my way in here which is so i've seen zodiac i think probably too many times um in recent years i too many times i i had like a how many is that Did you wear out a DVD? I w- let's say, let's say almost twice a year for ten years. A lot of times. So at least twenty times. Yeah, um, I had a Oof. I had a DVD that was either from the library. I think it was from the library, and I took it abroad with me to Sweden as a matter of coincidence. Oh my! Does and it work in that region? It <laughs> on an American laptop. It continued to work. Um, and I think I must have watched it like six times that summer. Um, How many it, DVDs did you have with you? That was the only one. Oh, uh, well, of course. Uh, yeah, sorry. I should say I brought it like accidentally within the laptop and was like, oh, this is the only thing I have. 
Um, and it's and two just, hours and thirty-seven minutes. You got your discs, disc drives worth. It can keep you. It can keep you busy. Um, and I mean, it's such a movie that, like, as much as I think it's great to sit down and watch it all in its totality, you can really feel its totality, uh, but in chunks because it's just like a series of propulsive, like, call this guy, call this guy. I don't know if we can trust that guy. I got to go to that guy's house and talk to that guy. Um, and just, yeah, you could watch the same 20 scenes over and over again. You could jump to the end, watch those 20 scenes. <laughs> um, but I've seen this movie a lot. And so my point is with the, when it comes to like how many people are playing the Zodiac, you can fully embrace the theme of like, they're not going to find the guy. They don't know who it is. This is a movie about the, it's a fallibility opus on behalf of like the investigators and who they're using to build their case. And you can come back and build, make a whole fucking forensic accounting of how Fincher created a fallibility opus by casting different people, by watching the little moments where it's like, oh, Philip Baker Hall presents as like such a trustworthy expert and then being like, no, like when did he start drinking the way that Sherwood, the handwriting expert, started drinking? There's something wrong with everyone in this movie that makes the case built on shifting sands, which I love about it. I think you know pretty early on that when they interview those two cops who like clearly drove by a white guy covered in blood and were only looking for a black guy and didn't stop the former, that like they're never going to get this guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite performance in this movie? Let's start there. Who do you want to talk about? Well, it's kind of like sectioned into the journalists and the cops. Yeah. And so, and they're almost like separate they kind of interact sometimes, but it's almost like a, like a, you know, season of Mad Men or something. It's like there are pockets of people that only overlap incidentally. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And watching this in chunks, like it, it like, there's a lot of it. Um, oh yeah. That being said, there's something nice about the male friendship exploration that happens in the juxtaposition between Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. And then Anthony Edwards and Mark Ruffalo. Mm -hmm. Whereas the cops have this very kind of like spouse relationship almost. And I think that sort of leads to the, the inevitable heartbreak of it all. Cause like they'd almost built their marriage on this case and then to kind of lose it in a way. Yeah. uh, causes them to divorce whereas jake gyllenhaal robert downey jr like they're more like siblings like older brother younger brother like oh let me see what you're doing i want to do it too and that kind of speaks to the way that their relationship kind of develops as well i think you can make an argument that all three about these movies are kind of about like the human cost of bonding over something heinous over something that should not be bonded over whether it be the detectives in seven or uh, Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara in the next movie or either of those two things you talked about. Not a lasting way to build a, <laughs> to build a friendship. Well, all, yeah, and they're all deeply lonely people too. Right. I mean, with Seven, especially, like even the married guy like is alone. And in this one too, like they, sure, they all like have their wives at home and their kids at home and you know, there there are moments where the interaction of family and the overlap of that kind of reminds you that like, oh, wait, these are human beings like dealing with horrible stuff every day. But I do think this movie is also kind of a deconstruction of that, you know, law and order paradigm of like these people are merely uh, occupations. Mm-hmm. 
and really kind of looking at how pretty standard human bonds are made just kind of organically just to get through the the day. Like your right. your spouse or your brother or whatever is just the guy you spend the most time with. It's so interesting to me how like the Chloe Sevigny character um who is married to Robert Graysmith, um, how early in that date she clocks like, oh, this guy, if I don't like help him in some way, he's going to die. He doesn't know how far away Los Angeles is. He doesn't know how to behave in a restaurant. Like he needs me to take care of him. Um, It'll take a good woman. (laughs) I wouldn't be like super psyched, of course, to be like uh, an actress in a lot of David Fincher films. Um, but I think it does make sense in his like maybe somewhat, you know, obsessive myopic view of like when Robert Graysmith looks up and he's like, oh, you're divorcing me. It's like, yeah, you you haven't talked to her for the last hour of the film. Like, what did you think was going to happen? No. And I think much like social network, this is also kind of like a boys play with their toys kind of movie mm-hmm. where it's like, God, if there were only a woman around like some better questions would be asked (laughs) sure (laughs) i'm gonna say though my opinion that robert downey jr has never been better in a movie i think it's for me it's my favorite of he's playing paul avery the crime reporter for the chronicle who's kind of like the first one on the reporting on the case before he sort of drowns in the drink as the 70s wear on paul stop boozing stop doing whatever else it is you're doing um but he it makes great use of robert downey jr as like a super kind of presentational hyper intelligent like fast talking smartest guy in the room but like when you just get that from robert downey jr i i kind of don't believe it i don't think he has like sort of enough sincerity to be like a leading man who gets what he wants at the end of the day. And so it's so great to watch him be virtuosic in this movie and theatrical and smart, but then like the sense of failure that sets in that he like cannot control himself. Um, I think it's, it's like the perfect RDJ part. Totally. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, all these movies also share that similar thing of the revelation of who the killer is and what their motives are is ultimately in the hands of the killer. And for the most part, the journey to have the killer sometimes even reluctantly be like, okay, it's me. Like, stop. (laughs) Like, just the I cannot watch you stumble around anymore. Exactly. It's... I mean, it almost makes, I mean, you brought up this question with seven, but you, it's the idea that the investigation is almost worse than the crime mm. or, or like even the, the, the pain inflicted to the victim initially. Hmm. And RDJ has just got some incredible line readings in this movie. Uh, like when Hall is reading like the first cipher and he's just like, I love to kill. I must kill. It is better than getting your rocks off with a girl. And Paul Avery just goes, me thinks our friend's a tad bit fuckered in the head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line delivery I enjoy. An editorial tete-a-tete. Um, totally. Great at he took that one and things. just chewed on it a little. Yeah. I love that. The, yeah, there's the a Sacramento lot of good... houseboat scene? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's a good one too. 
all the scenes in this are really good. It's just good, compelling scenes stacked, you know, and Fincher at this runtime is not afraid to just have a funny comical scene. Mm hmm. Like when they're all teasing him at the teasing Jake Gyllenhaal that maybe they call him the R word behind his back at work. Like right. that's not a tension building scene. <laughs> no. I mean, maybe it is in like a, a character establishment kind of way, but in terms of the figuring out who the fucking Zodiac killer is, yeah. uh, he, he's having a little bit more fun here, but I think it makes it more palatable than say, like I think seven kind of the, the watchability factor like wiggles a little bit towards bad just in how, like, yeah, there's, like, funny, witty, throwaway lines to lighten the mood, but there are not any light scenes. Like, there's no, they don't really have that much fun, like, at the dinner party at the subway house, you know? No. Well, and the detectives in Seven are in, like, a real tried and true, like, movie grammar. And I think that Zodiac, right. because... James Vanderbilt showed up with this script that he had adapted from Graysmith's book like many years before. Fincher got a hold of it and was like, yeah, 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 nice script. How about you and I interview everyone who ever lived in San Francisco and we'll rewrite it that way? <laughs> like you, totally, can, yeah. you can feel that most of this movie is driven by detail and idiosyncrasy and weird real life stuff. And I think too, the script is very concerned with like, that cult of personality American question where who's ever orbit because the police have the responsibility to gather the facts and then the journalists have the responsibility to ostensibly inform the public what they need to know about these facts. But all the people that they're either getting the facts from or that determine the sort of, you know, business around this are all, you know, charlatans and people with their own agendas. Like, I think the Brian Cox character is such a fun wrinkle in this movie. Like, you know, when they go to his house and he's held on to one of these fucking letters for a week. Yeah. And he's like, you guys, I know that my housekeeper spoke to him on the phone, but the letter, that's the story. Yeah. Um, my favorite one of those, and you can tell me if this gets like too tinfoil hatty. Um, but so the whole idea that Arthur Lee Allen, like the prime suspect, it all depends on like whether his writing sample matches the Zodiac letters, right? But the whole time they're like, well, he's ambidextrous. So we just have to get the sample from his right hand. We think that's it. We think that's it. They get that detail from his old boss at like the Vallejo Recreation Center, who clearly, I mean, he's in the movie for 60 seconds, but has clearly just been keeping this like mental file on this creep that he used to work with. Who's like, oh yeah, Arthur Lee would like misspell stuff. Like he thought it was funny. And like, you guys know he's ambidextrous, right? And he mispronounces the word ambidextrous, which sends them off down this one hour long rabbit hole of like trying to get the other hand. But here's this guy, this random guy who gives them this really like the thing that for them they think breaks it open and he's mispronounced a word which is clearly that's intentional because you don't have an actor mispronounce a word in the same way that the zodiac like writes weird little things and who knows if it means anything like it's everywhere in this movie totally yeah and all the people that they talk to it's funny for the most part kind of fit the description like really anyone's help they enlist is a stocky white guy (laughs) yeah it's true. And really, even most of the cops are stocky white guys. Yeah. Like, the cops outside the inner circle of these, like, San Francisco skinny heroin people. 
Which leads me to my next question, Noah, and I hope you're okay with this. We're going to play a quick game of Fuck, Mary Kill. Jack Mullenix in Vallejo, Ken Narlo in Napa, or Mel Nikolai with Justice? It's definitely Elias Kotias, uh, just so I could say that. Yeah, for, for, sexy, for sexy time or merry time? Oh, I'd, uh, yeah, we, we'd have to... Fu- well, no, because I'd want to take his name. Sure. Noah Mullenix? Mr. Elias Katias. Okay. <laughs> um, and then Donald Logue is Ken Narlo or Zach Grenier kill. is Nikolai. Kill Donald Logue. Kill. What about the Dermot Mulroney guy? Yeah. The SFPD. I would, ma- I would, I would fuck him. No, uh, you have, you can only fuck Mary kill the outer county law enforcement. Oh <laughs> my, who was the, who was, who were my other options? Well, Mel Nikolai from justice is Zach Grenier. <laughs> Okay, I guess I'd I'd fuck I can't fuck Donald Logue. <laughs> One of my the favorite Town of Steve. Come on, these guys. This movie is just populated with so many incredible. James Legros in it for like two seconds, where he's like, "Jack, who is that guy?" And he's like, "He thinks he's gonna track down the Zodiac killer." He just goes, "Good for him." And then he like <laughs> shows Jimmy Simpson a photo at the end. <laughs> like, this is a paradise of. 40-something middle-aged white dudes who kind of look like cops. Um, but I also love the second half of the movie when Graysmith takes over and the case is pretty cold. How all of these like law enforcement guys who, like, by virtue of like professional responsibility, like can't keep looking into this case, they kind of like sick Graysmith on these like weird avenues of it, like off the record, you know, like I always like this weird fucking guy. You wanna go drive yourself insane checking that out? And he's like, Yes, yes, I do. I really do like in the second half that this movie and what I think makes it spoiler, maybe the best of the three (gasps) is it's not afraid to like play out the thing that happens after the case like is basically over. Yeah. You know, and I think it's smart to pick a case that never really ends. Right. You know, and and then it becomes more, you know, less a genre movie and more about the madness of, of investigation and the lack of closure around this thing. And then the cyclical violence that plagues our society. Sure. And just how we all think that we're like, Oh, I'll, I'll figure it out. doesn't matter that I'm a cartoonist. Um, and how circumstantial evidence drives us insane. Like the amount of circumstantial evidence pointing toward Arthur Lee Allen is absurd. But, uh, the D- DNA tests and the handwriting sample are, they're not there. It's not, the science says it's not him. Like, what are you supposed you to know. do with that? Careful, Dirty Harry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And that, that, I think, is an interesting part about this movie that maybe speaks to, like, a contemporary political discourse. Is that this movie is, like, very much gut versus head. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, your head says, no, it's not fucking him because of X, Y, and Z. But your gut you know, it's so easily swayed uh, by, and just this, the idea that there needs to be somebody like is also this like weird urgency to the whole thing. Like they don't even know if it's multiple people, like they don't even know which, which murders are really his, you know, they know for certain he's killed a handful of people, but like, it's never the full And there could be there. Then there are allusions to bodies that like we never even find. Right. Even the there's a great scene at the end because you know Graysmith at kind of the the peak of his 
obsessive madness is like, I just need to look him in the eye and know that it's him. There's this great kind of coda scene at the hardware store where he goes and stares at Arthur Lee Allen. First, many times I saw the movie, I'm like, that's it. He's getting what he wants. He knows. And this time you watch it and it's sort of like as you watch the smile like fall off Arthur Lee Allen's face, it's like he might just be looking like a menacing murderer because this bleary-eyed weirdo wandered into the store and won't stop staring at him. And of course, Arthur Lee Allen's a pedophile and guilty of many other things. But still, like, just because he like glowered back at you doesn't make him the Zodiac killer. Well, that I think goes back to the point about the investigation being more painful than the crime is that like, I mean, at least on the, the rabbit hole that these guys have to go down, like they find some horrible fucking people who have also done some horrible fucking stuff. Right. Just not the guy that they're looking for. Who's done the most optically, you know, upsetting, which is really like just a, a drop in the bucket of all the horrible things that are happening to people on a daily basis. I think that is, is ple- unpleasant and fitting a note to seal off the, to finally close the Zodiac case. Let's do it. Um, it's a good, good for me. It's one of my favorite movies ever. So. Yeah. It's really good. Good. Yeah. I agree. Um, for all the aforementioned reasons. And I think, uh, again, not to spoil it, but I think it's definitely the best of the three. Yeah. It's amazing to see a movie that is so chopped up that the length feels different. If this had a more novelistic arc, you would feel the length, but this is just so like, here's a bite, here's a bite, here's a bite, here's a bite, that it, I don't know, I, I experience it differently than I would a lot of other two-hour, 40-minute movies. And it's really like a good sort of uh, concept pitch for doing a whole season of Mindhunter. Absolutely. Hopefully three seasons, I dare say. I love that every time Fincher does an interview for anything, he's like, you know, those other dozen projects that I've been paid to talk about today, the one that really keeps me up at night, season three of Mindhunter. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Groff. That would just... be interesting to let Groff get a little longer in the tooth. Mm. God, he's great in that role. He's Everyone is good on that show. Proof of concept. That's what I was looking for. There you go. And now on to the best movie of the three. 2011, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Two hours and 38 <laughs> minutes. Journalist Michael Blumquist is aided in his search for a woman who has been missing for 40 years by a young computer hacker, Lisbeth Solander. The titular girl with the dragon tattoo. She's the one. Not a lot of play for the dragon tattoo in this movie. There are a couple like, you know, pointed shots of it when she's like in a shower, like cleaning herself off from whatever mayhem she just endured. Kind of. Yeah. But no, we didn't get that uh, Ray Fiennes red dragon. Excuse me. I At have no a... point in the film do you think she's becoming the dragon tattoo. And that's a problem for me. You have a problem with not knowing whether it's a tattoo or just like a demon lurking within her that's going to come out. I mean, look, there's this is another movie. There's another Levitican serial killer horror film.
She's one of the best investigators I have. But? She's different. Uh, in what way? In every way. Something wrong with the report? Anything you chose not to disclose? He's clean, in my opinion. He's honest. Our credibility isn't dead yet. Mine is. He's had a long-standing sexual relationship with his co-editor of the magazine. Sometimes he pleasures her. Not often enough, in my opinion. No, you're right not to include that. I need your help. You come stay on the island. A way of avoiding all those people you might want to avoid right now. You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet. My family. This is Harriet. Someone in the family murdered Harriet. And for the past 40 years, has been trying to drive me insane. Those are from her, and the rest from her killer. So let me set the stage here. Michael's been recently successfully sued by a powerful CEO who ran an article in the magazine that he co-publishes called Millennium. Uh, Guy is able to prove in court that he's not a criminal. He gets a big fine slapped on him. He loses all of his euro, whatever that is. Um, He loses all of his kroner. 50 kroner, 100 kroner. Who's to say? And I don't know. I think there's kind of a big hole at the beginning of this movie of like why Michael takes this fucking gig. Because then Christopher Plummer, another fucking evil seeming CEO, <laughs> calls a northern him Northern industrialist. Another Northern industrialist. Uh, who is not a self-made man, but in fact the inheritor of like his grandfather's company, uh, calls him up to the North Pole and this like weird island that he's living in with all of his relatives and none of whom speak to each other, even though they live on this island together, to solve a mystery of who stole his niece or what happened to his niece mm-hmm. 40 in years the 60s. before. Yeah. And then he slowly reveals pretty quickly that like most of the family, if they're not like, like full on Nazis, then they're at least Nazi sympathizers. And I don't know if you've seen inside man, but Christopher Plummer, probably a Nazi too. I don't know if you've seen sound of music. He's not a Nazi. You're right. But why would Michael, who's just been totally bamboozled and, you know, he's had, he's been John Doe himself. John Doe has the, the upper hand. Uh, Eric Mark, whatever Feld is, is, has the, he's got yeah. the upper hand. <laughs> Stay away. Why would he then immediately get in bed with this fucking guy? Fair enough. Do you think the fact that nowhere in that did you talk about Elizabeth Salander is also a problem with this movie? Well, yeah. Also, the movie doesn't know how to like put them in the same room. And I would argue, like, even when it does put them in the same room, it doesn't know what to do with them other than intercourse. See, I would disagree. I think when they finally get together, they make for, like, a very funny, kind of interesting, odd couple. But I think even if you were going to make kind of an egg-headed argument, they're like, oh, for the first 70 minutes, they're, like, interesting sort of mirrors of each other who are, like, unwittingly down these different paths of abuse and loneliness, and they, like, she's 
like engaging with humanity more and he's like gone to the very outskirts of him i don't know you you could make a english major argument but the fact is like when you have Listen, two characters that like need to interact including the titular character um and they don't for fucking ever and her plot line is mostly just like super gratuitous rape and rape revenge um what like what are we doing for the first half of this movie yes well that i mean we talked about this a little before we did we mention this on the podcast who can remember but the fact that this movie opens up a lot of doors in a sort of hollywood hubristic way of it's almost like oh we're going to return to the rapey therapist because we have to but like the rapey therapist really has very little to do with the central conflict of the movie. It just kind of sets her in a context of like, oh, the world fucks her over sometimes really literally absolutely constantly. Well, I think Rooney Mara's performance is so convincing too. Like it's so obvious that she's like an outsider and like living by her own weird like I don't know, like her her vibe is almost like reptilian at times. Totally. Um, that you don't need like this stuff of this like state guardian raping her to be like, you get it now. She, now she's really gone through it. It's exactly. Like, I can tell by looking at her, she's gone through it. You could easily just cut to the thing that connects him is that she's better at investigating him than he is at investigating other people. And that's what brings them together. And he like kind of cracks her out of her shell that is obviously formed by all these abuses that are happened to her. But yeah, I just like wondered why we needed, you know, this 45 minute kind of prologue about her getting sodomized by her therapist. Right. And needing money um, to then go do the thing that the movie needs her to do. Yeah. Well, my broader point is just kind of like, so these are all movies about like people who want to, who can't help themselves, but to create like psych profiles, right. From detectives to killers, from detectives to each other, um, from detectives to fallible sources. And I just think this movie, it's psych profiles are kind of lazy. It's like, Exactly. Nazis are real bad and men take horrible advantage of women. Well, I didn't like it either. Like, again, you, you have like the payoff of the revenge when she gives him worse than, you know, she got or whatever to teach him a lesson. But also that I just don't believe you should ever have a character enter a room being like, hey, the last time we talked, I didn't expect you to do this thing, but I will never make that mistake again. It's like, then you're kind of giving up the illusion that like this person had a previous life. Like, why is she such a, you know, babe in the woods here when she's Mm -hmm. clearly already been hardened by a very difficult life? Like, and, and it almost takes away from her sense of, or the viewer's sense of her being formidable because she was pretty easily taken advantage of, I would say. And like, You'd think for someone who was so, like, having all these contacts and, you know, seemingly smart on her feet and and pretty flawless with her other kind of espionage, uh, that she was so taken in by a clear bad actor. Right. There is, like, 45 minutes in this movie from the time that Lisbeth comes up to, what is it, like, Hedestadt, the island, to... um, basically like the resolution of 
of Martin and Harriet that I think is is really good. But the it's a little bit inexplicable, like the first seventy, and then like we'll talk about the last thirty, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, like I I think they are they're kind of like like cute together in this absolutely insane way. I think of like Daniel Craig just being like I've been shot in the head. Like, oh my God. And to see James Bond be like, I don't know what the fuck to do about this. And her be like, I know what to do. Put dental floss in your head and fuck your brains out. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which I think is kind of funny. Um, I thought yeah. that the the sex is hot, sure. But I think the hottest part of the movie is when Stellan Skarsgård's like run into his Land Rover or whatever. And Rooney looks back and is just like, can I kill him? Yes. And it's just like, yep. ugh. I wish uh, one of my companions would ask me if they could kill someone else. I would say no, but just to be asked is very. Well, you would you would let out whatever like barely understandable utterance from the floor that you could, and they would take it for what it was. I mean, if I'd been just hooked up to that uh, that contraption <laughs> on the ceiling, like of course. Um, Here's my question: Is the dungeon sling good for the back or bad for the back? I think at the speed at which it like comes back mm. can't be good for the yeah. back, but I think ultimately <laughs> there's gotta be like a use case for it being good. Sure. I like, I did kind of like, I was sitting there watching it like kind of like with my elbows back, just like trying to be like, Oh yeah, that like, that looks kind of nice. I bet you get some good clicks yeah. out of that. Um, <laughs> now let me ask you, this is like a kind of a, another fatal flaw of the movie unlike Zodiac where literally anyone on screen could have been the killer. I feel like it is Stellan Skarsgård from the moment you are introduced to him because mm-hmm. it's just as the problem where this movie is like afraid to be too knives outy. And so it spends so little time with really any of the, it's like, Oh, one ant comes by and it's just like, fuck yourself. And then like, another guy's like in a room with some photographs and it's like, well, it's not that fucking guy. And then most of the people who end up being implicated in the, both the bad shit and also like the, the, the mystery that gets solved, like are off screen. Sure. I, my take on this is that I actually think Stellan Skarsgård is good in this movie. There's oh, no sure. point where, where he does the mustache twirling. It's just bad casting. Cause he seems so even though I think he does a very good job of playing what I think is the the psych profile that the movie works up about Sweden, which is that like people are plight as a point of of like to pathological uh, like denial and or just to be manipulative. Like he plays that perfectly. Yeah. Um. He never he never twirls his invisible blonde mustache. But yeah, I think when you put Stellan Skarsgård in the middle of it and just have him be like. Anything you need, my friend, anything you need. It's just, it's too much. It's too obvious. I'm going to kill you and eat you later. Uh, Sorry. Was that out loud? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, you know, like this movie and maybe this book, I don't know, uh, kind of endeavors, it sort of opens the door of like why these kind of like inbred rich families like are the way they are. You know, and in many ways it is like a knives out or like a ready or not or any of these sort of like closed door sort of mysteries, uh, locked room. Um, But then it kind of like wants to be something else. Like it wants to be like a bigger thing on like journalism or 
you know, ethics or the power of investigation. And I don't know. It's almost like the things that were frustrating but tickling about Zodiac are kind of dismissed in this one for something else entirely uh, in the back third of this movie. Yeah, like after the torture dungeon. After the torture dungeon, but also well, after the torture that epilogue there is kind of like get ready for the second one, guys. They're going to green light it at any minute now. Uh, but no, I almost mean like the lead up to the climax. Like you have her spend all these time, like all this time in the you know the bunker of this corporate headquarters or whatever, going through the files, and then he basically comes to the same conclusion too, which is nothing yeah. conclusive. Again, like going back to you know, kind of the circumstantial evidence, like him being on that street that one day and like being two hours off in the timeline that he says, like really doesn't end up, I mean, it doesn't end up mattering. It has nothing to do with, you know, the girl being missing. So it's like, oh, we both discovered this thing through the power of investigation, but then it ultimately, and they both have the light bulb moment that like this guy's fucked up. But again, I guess it goes back to Fincher's interest in, the even more horrible thing you find when you lift up the rock. Sure. Well, and yeah, I I was like, oh, Fincher would love a, like a giveaway that's based purely on voyeurism and camera angles. Um, but yeah, like the sort of Zapruder film of whatever that Swedish parade was that day. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. It, I, I, I don't know if this is too much of a generalization at least compared to these other two, I kind of just wonder if like the material is a little beneath him. No, like I, I probably shouldn't shade Stieg too much. Again, I haven't, I haven't read it either. I think the acting in this movie, like top to bottom is pretty good. Um, I think that they're, you got, by this point in Fincher's career, you got uh, Reznor and Ross doing the score. And when she is in that basement, like looking through, the microfiche or whatever and it's just like fucking kettle drums and fincher's <laughs> camera being like read this headline now look at this picture now look at the and nobody's even saying anything it is kind of like yeah you the, like these are some of the absolute most skillful people in this totally. industry but like i just don't think the conclusion is either satisfying or sort of poetically dissatisfying as zodiac was enough to yeah i don't know it never f- fully pulls out of that like just eh, you know paperback paperback mystery novel kind of space totally yeah i mean i I, i'm not gonna argue that it's a poorly made film on the contrary i almost think it's like an over made film like i almost Mm, almost think the production value that's gone into this maybe sort of flimsy story uh is kind of annoying (laughs) yeah there might be some hubris there of like yeah that book wasn't that good i'll make it good though (laughs) And it really kind of lacks some of those charming qualities of the previous two movies. Like it doesn't have the animal crackers, you know, it just has these like people's like very movie like, like, Oh, I'm an expert in hacking. So I'll do deet, deet, deet and it'll like be done. And there's no, like, I don't know. It would have been funnier. As a cat, Daniel Craig yells cat at the cat, which is funny. I was troubled by the fact that, and I guess maybe this is to the character or something, but the idea of this woman like only knows how to have relationships with men through sex. And that kind of goes unexplored. Like when she talks to to her like comatose former handler or whatever, 
She's like, oh, I made a friend. Like, don't worry. It's a healthy relationship. It's like, no, it's not. You're like, this guy's paying you to work for him and you're also having sex with him. And then the moment that he's done with the case, he forgets that you exist. I don't know. I think that's a pretty heartbreaking line where she's like, don't worry, I made a friend. Um, I think I think I read that part as like intentional, like the idea that she like gets to work on a project with someone um, and have sort of this fleeting connection. Like I, That's why I feel so mixed about the, the epilogue because like the Hans-Erik Vennerstrom stuff where like Lis- Lisbeth Salander like continues to investigate him and brings down who is essentially like a billionaire that we only see in news clippings. It's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. But I think the end where she like goes and buys him the jacket and he's like, oh, you know what? I'm a little bit more like a normal person and he's a little bit more on the edge like me and we found each other. And then it's like, oh shit, we didn't. I think it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I think Rooney Mara but plays think- it really well. But I think you're right that the the TV like newsreel to catch you up into the epilogue of like what happened to the corporate guy from the beginning. Who like, cares? Who cares? Who cares about the money? Like, yeah, this movie comes becomes like a hey, can I borrow fifty thousand dollars so I can make the last twenty minutes of this movie, Ocean's Eleven? Like, <laughs> who cares about that? I think it should be they just get back. You know, the magazine's still whatever, but they now have new financial backing. And yeah, she like tries to meet up with him for a date and with this jacket. And then he like has blown her off with uh, Robin Wright. Right. I want to raise a glass and say skull to Robin Wright for being really the only person in this movie who attempts and succeeds at a Swedish accent. I think it's hilarious that Daniel Craig doesn't even try unless he's saying it's, oh, it's, it's Mikkel so Blomqvist. <laughs> yeah. He like comes out to the cameras in the first 30 seconds and does this kind of pan Euro like, you don't believe me. And then and then he's just like James Bond the rest of the time. I, I, that's fine. I honestly think that none of these people should have. Like let Stellan do his like normal kind of accent. And then, you know, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer gives it a pretty valiant effort, I would say. He does. Plummer, I, I'll i say again, I really like a lot of the acting in this movie. Like, Plummer also, just the way he's just like, you're going to, in winter, it's such a beautiful place. I'll put you up in my bungalow by the water. <laughs> it's like a fucking uh, icebox sitting next to, like, a frozen river. Um, and that's more of, like, that politeness of, like... Well, you're going to, if I say it's great, surely, like, you wouldn't want to offend me by being like, I made you stay in an igloo all winter with no heat. Okay, I finally have a question for you, now that we've talked about all three films. You have to spend a night in Arthur Lee Allen's squirrel trailer? Uh, (laughs) Uh... The room with the sloth guy and the air freshener pine trees hanging from the ceiling? Stop. You're not going to... My option's not even going to be the subway apartment? No. Or Martin Vanger's second basement. Now, don't answer yet because I know the second basement's way more appealing than those other options. You have to stay in his cage. Oh, the little metal thing on wheels that he had uh, Katarina in the last weekend or whatever? That's right. Where do you spend a night? I feel like the guy with the... uh, Who's been on life support for a year would probably be a good listener. <laughs> get some things off your chest. I could get some things off my chest. Yeah. I'm not going to get into that 
that Arthur Lee Allen thing. No, if you shine a flashlight in his eyes and tell him one story about your parents, he'll die right on the spot. Yeah, that's the thing, too. If he gets too annoying, I'll just, like, put my head near him and he'll die. (laughs) Anyway, uh, what are we rating this film? I think it's a good bad. Sure. I think it's well made. Like I said, almost too well made. But I think the mystery, tension, family, character building stuff, like it just doesn't know what to focus on. It's so focused on like the torture porn of it all that, and the revenge fantasy of the first act that I just think it kind of loses its way to be shocking at the actual climactic moment. Mm-hmm. I I think that we're very close to agreeing on the film as a whole. I'm going to take it the other way and say bad, good. I think that like the script is making such like massive unforced errors, but I really like that middle 45 minutes, as I said, and I really enjoy many of the performances, which make it kind of watchable in this like goofy Fincher completist thing that I'm afflicted with. So I'll go bad. Good. The thing about it is like, he's going to get a whole, a hold of a, of a pulpy best-selling novel in Gone Girl like three years later and do it much better. So He gets another try. Now do we want to say which of the seven deadly sins? Am I or are you? Do we each want to say the others? Or is that a recipe for trouble? No, I'd like to do it. Okay. Um, let me size you up for a second. And of course it's gluttony. No, that's not... <laughs> Um, I feel like anytime we get in a car, you tell me how pretty my wife is and how much you want my simple <laughs> life. So it's envy. All right, my friend. Thanks for uh, walking down this very, very creepy corpse-ridden road with me. Of course. Um, anytime. All right. Happy birthday, Finch. <laughs> <laughs>